This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Chad Thompson. Chad Thompson's host. I'm the host. (laughs) I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. (laughs) Today on The Premise, we are speaking with Bella Miguel Cipriani. Bello has served as an accessibility and recruiting consultant for Fortune 100 companies, including Apple, Google, Toyota, Facebook, and Wells Fargo, among others. He is an award-winning author, prize-winning journalist, an advocate for disabled persons, and is blind himself. He is a publisher and the CEO and founder of Olib Media, an ADA compliance firm. Bello, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, so Bello, one of the things that I think will be of interest to our readers is how, as a storyteller, you've really had to fight to not just get your story told, but to be taken seriously as a writer and an author. You know, doors didn't open for you, but you never accepted no for an answer. And in many ways, I think you've kind of had to build your own doors along the way. And now you're opening doors for other writers of disability. Your personal story arc is impressive, to say the least, and we're going to get into that. Your story is one of resilience, stick-to-itiveness, passion, and of always fighting for what you believe in. I'd like to take our listeners through your journey because I think it shows how important it is to believe in our dreams and to never give up. So my first question is, had you always wanted to be a writer? Not really, actually. I think that, you know, when I think back of back to when I was a kid and I was, you know, dreaming of the future, I was, you know, I I think I wanted to be an engineer and be in tech and um, Mm -hmm. I did achieve that, you know, and in retrospect, I wonder how much of that was, you know, actually me or me also being pushed towards that, you know, space. So I, I grew up, you know, I'm a millennial, so I grew up in the 90s where placement tests were super popular. You know, everyone was taking a, a career uh, readiness test, and I was always testing really high in math. And every single time I took those tests, I was always pegged as an engineer, and I, I, I accepted that. Mm. You know, so, you know, I followed that tra- trajectory, you know, went to college and majored in um in uh, information systems. And it wasn't until I became blind where I was just so full of emotions and uh, was seeing a therapist for my PTSD um, that I started to write. And so definitely as of today, I feel as though that if I hadn't um, lost my sight, I'd have, I would have never become a writer. Mm. Do you mind sharing with our listeners how you came to be blind? Oh no, not at all, not at all. Um, you know, as a memoirist, I'm what what I refer to as emotionally slutty. <laughs> so I like to share my emotions all the time, and with anyone who would listen. <laughs> and and I think it's important too for our writers, our listeners, to know that you wrote a book, you wrote a memoir, Blind, a memoir that was actually endorsed by Amy Tan. It was, and it also picked up a couple um, uh, awards. And uh, you know, it's a the memoir focuses on uh, the my recovery period from an assault that took place uh, on April 13th, 2007. I was in San Francisco working in tech and I came across a a group of friends uh, from high school and our meeting turned sour. They began to insult me. And before I knew it, they were beating me up. So Mm -hmm. I had a group of men kicking me um, 
all over my body, uh, but my cause of blindness is retinal detachment from receiving multiple blows to the head. Um, So in a nutshell, I became instantly blind and disabled. And I went from being somebody who was able-bodied and very independent to somebody who was given a new life and was trying to figure out how to, you know, make that life uh, work. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can't even imagine being sighted one day and being blind the next. And I can't, I can't even begin to imagine how angry you must have been do you how did you get through those those initial dark days i was very fortunate that my family has always been supportive um within days of me uh being hospitalized and you know uh, trying to navigate uh you know the, the betrayal because these people were you know my, my high school friends and there's that aspect that makes this um this tragedy a lot more complex where these i felt betrayed by these people um, and so, you know, my, um, my support, you know, was instantly provided by my family who came in and helped me, uh, my mom moved in with me to help me, um, you know, uh, rehab my house, you know, I had to figure out how to do things around my house and, you know, buy equipment and label things. Um, I feel as though that also me losing my sight in San Francisco was important because the Bay area, um, as a whole, people may not recognizes but the ada was born in the bay area um, really oh yeah a lot of the that. the big disability um social justice movements came from the bay area from berkeley from san francisco and so mm. there's a lot of great advocacy agencies there and so within days of you know getting my doomsday diagnosis that i would never see again i had social workers at my home i was mm. scheduled to take braille classes um, and so it was just many things that were happening at the same time. My family support, support from my community, um, but also really being, uh, I think, also forced to do these things where I feel as though, um, you know, if I had, you know, lost my sight slowly, I probably wouldn't have, you know, been pushed to <laughs> take all these classes. I, I felt like there was this part of me that's like, okay, well, what are my other options, right? I really don't have any, so I should just try to, you know, do the best that I can. Right, right. And, I mean, you are really educated. How many degrees do you have? I have uh, uh, two master's degrees and a doctorate. Wow. <laughs> and talk to us Slacker. about... Slacker. Yeah, right? <laughs> You're making <laughs> us look bad, Bello. I mean, why? So why do you have... Did you get so many degrees? Tell us about that path. You know, I, you know, they all happen organically and I'll, I'll preface with saying that I didn't just wake up one day and say, Oh, I'm going to get a master's in the doctorate. I'm going to be you know, just, really educated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I wasn't planning to be like on a game show or anything, you know, um, things just happened, you know, opportunities came up and I just took them. And so the first one was when, um, I was working in San Francisco, uh, for a staffing agency and I was laid off after the 2008, you know, mortgage meltdown. And so I, when I got laid off, I decided to use that time to, you know, go to grad school and really focus on writing. Um, by that time, I had started, you know, um, with small little journal entries and then started sharing with friends and family. And I, I got really positive feedback and thought that maybe I should give this writing thing a shot and went to get my uh, my master's in creative writing. And, you know, that just opened up a whole other, you know, uh, world of opportunities. I started doing freelance journalism. But I think 
what really was happening was that it was hard for me to look for, for, for work. And I was, you know, constantly figuring out how to, you know, find new ways of employment. Um, and so that's kind of what led me to, uh, uh, get my, my second master's and, you know, my, uh, my doctorate where I was looking to be, uh, find work. And, you know, at the end of the day, I found more success by, you know, starting my own business than trying to, um, you know, uh, get a full-time job with a company. Mm. I've heard, I heard a statistic a couple of years ago, uh, in terms of how many blind people are actually able to find gainful employment and the numbers, numbers were startlingly low. They really are. So within the blind community and the, the, you know, I would like to, uh, point out to, um, not just unemployment, but underemployment. So right. for instance, you know, for me, when I was working, you know, for the San Francisco Chronicle, I was employed, but it was part-time work and mm-hmm. I couldn't get full-time because I couldn't, you know, uh, edit uh, video or pictures. Fast um, enough for, yeah. Exactly. So there's a, you know, it's the underemployment that's even a bigger problem where people are taking jobs just because they need something, but it's not ideal. And, you know, thus, you know, consequently, you know, they're not making what they want to make or what they would like to make. Yeah. Well, but you, I mean, you really pushed through. So you really worked at getting a job as a journalist. And I remember, because I knew you then, you were going through the process. And I remember when you got hired by the San Francisco Chronicle, and I was actually kind of surprised by your area of, you know, your assignment. So tell us a little bit about what you were writing for, for the Chronicle. Sure. At that time, I was the career advice um, blogger. And so... <laughs> no, it's just so <laughs> funny to me. Like, here you are, you represent, you know, a community that's underemployed, and you're the career advice columnist. It was it was shocking. And I felt as though at times I felt like a, a little bit of a hypocrite, because here I was telling people giving, you know, the Bay Area advice on how to find and, or keep their job or get a promotion or... At the same time, I was struggling with that myself. Sure. And so um, I noticed that whenever there was times where I really opened up with my readers and say, this is just really tough. This sucks. You know, mm-hmm. um, they were very happy about it. Um, you know, when I was uh, working for the, um, the Chronicle, I was trying to figure out my, my, my place in the world and my place, you know, um, in society. And so I was struggling with my identity and it was something that was hard for me because, you know, I, I, I call myself like a, a Swiss army knife of minorities because, um, you know, I'm Jewish, you know, I'm a person of color. Um, my, you know, my, uh, my dad's family were Afro Brazilian, um, and I'm gay and, you know, all these things were always a big part of, you know, of my life and my identity. Okay. And, yeah, you tick a lot of the boxes, right? <laughs> yeah, I did, you know, but with disability, it was something where, you know, for instance, when, you know, I, I grew up Jewish, but I had my family and my mom to tell me, well, this is how you're, you know, this is what Jewish means for us. And you, you know, I had that support system, you know, when I came out as gay, I found that support um, from the gay community by going to, you know, gay places. Um, but when I was, uh, when I came out, when, well, when I became disabled, you know, that was harder to find. And so I wanted to really study religion. So I ended up getting a master's in religious studies. And I did that just because I wanted to kind of come up with my own, you know, spiritual practice that didn't just encompass, you know, my sexuality, but also my disability. 
Mm. And so what did that look like for you? You know, I, I think I, you know, um, consider myself interfaith. So I borrow from a little, a lot of faiths and kind of came up with my own, um, you know, with family, I still celebrate some of the, the, the high holidays, you know, Jewish holidays and I, you know, family members who are Catholic also or Lutheran, but for myself, I, you know, I meditate a lot. I, um, focus on, um, I read a lot of, you know, um, scriptures from different religions. Someone that I really enjoy is uh, Mirabai, who is the poet saint of India. I find her teachings very uh, useful for me, especially when I'm kind of <laughs> running around and stressed out. I uh, find her work very calming. But yeah, I, I borrow from a, a lot of different places and I found that that really works for me. And I think it took me, you know, a couple of years to figure that out, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place now. Nice. Yeah. I mean, You've done, you're doing so many great things for people, for yourself. I don't want to skip ahead too, too far. So tell us, so you have three degrees. Tell us what they are. Sure. So I have a, a master's in creative writing. I have the, the master's in religious studies that I just mentioned. Yeah. And then I got my, my doctorate in, um, in education and organizational leadership. Oh, okay. And okay. so for my doctorate, you know, uh, once I had my identity and had my, my practice, I knew who I was and had, had to write. I wanted to uh, do research. And, you know, I'll, often I felt that people with disabilities were not just missing from the conversations, but were missing from sections of society, you know. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, get the skills to not just do research, but, you know, become a consultant and help you know, organizations improve on their inclusion. Yeah. So that's, that was the reason for, for that. And that, that was really the catalyst for me to establish myself as a consultant. And, you know, now I have my firm and I have right. a few folks working for me. So, you know, things are uh, moving forward. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you about your process of learning how to write again. So learning how to use a computer and how to like explain to people who are sighted how that works for someone to be able to use a computer and have that kind of autonomy. Sure. So um, people, if you're people who are blind, um, who are completely blind uh, or who are, you know, partially blind use screen readers and a screen reader application, um, you know, is it's, runs on your computer on your de desktop or, or laptop. There's also mobile screen readers for your phone. And what it does is it reads what's on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, often, you know, I, I still use a, you know, your standard, um, QWERTY keyboard. Um, but how I engage with the computers completely with, you know, just, um, the, the, uh, different, uh, keystrokes, you know, I, I can't use a mouse, so everything needs to be, you know, it's a combination of keystrokes and um, screen readers are very robust application. And so um, the, the specific screen reader that I use um, has about 9,000 commands. And so it's a series of different strokes that I use, you know, to uh, move the text on the screen, to bold things, to space things out, to, you know, run the spell check. And th so in essence, you know, I write by listening to my computer read what's on the, on the uh, screen. Wow. You know, <laughs> 9,000, that's mind boggling to me. So Chad's always on me about using shortcut keys to make my life easier and, you know, to be more productive. And, you know, sure, I know how to cut and paste, but like, <laughs> I'm so bad at that. I can't even imagine 9,000. 
I was really bad at it too. (laughs) Were you, how long did it take you to really get confident at that? Oh man, I think it took me a good two years to, you know, I think I consider myself a power user and it's obviously because of my, you know, I've always been a student. Oh, I've been a student for so long for like the last couple of years um, that I feel that, you know, I think I know about 200 commands really well and I'm always working on learning new ways to do different things. But I think it was a good two, three years where I was like, okay, I'm finally in a place where I could take on, you know, whatever comes my way. Yeah. So when I met you, you were writing blind. Blind was just about to be released. And you were really inventing yourself. And I was always so impressed with you and your ability to, to stay positive when things seemed bleak. I think that, again, it goes to the support. And so um, I'll share a quick story um, with you. When I was getting my, my, my master's in religious studies uh, through an instructor, I heard that there was... Um, the, the hugging saint of India was going to come to the Bay Area because she has an ashram here, a, a temple. And it's a big deal. People line up for, you know, for for days, you know, or hours just to get the blessing from the hugging saint of India, which is um, Amma. And she gives you her blessing by giving you a hug. And so there I was, you know, uh, waiting in line for hours. And when I finally get to, you know, see her and I'm like, okay, hook me up. Here's my hug. She actually just shakes my hand and says, you know, I could just see you and know that you've been loved. Somebody has really loved you. You don't need my blessing. What? I know. (laughs) You're like, but I've been standing here. (laughs) Exactly. So instead she gave me man. (laughs) She gave me a Hershey's kiss. (laughs) Weird. Exactly. But I think it wasn't until that moment that I realized, you know, I've always been, you know, loved. My parents just really loved me. My sisters really loved me. And Mm. and I think, you know, um, that's been always something that's helped me move through very dark times. And, you know, when I lost my mom, that was very hard for me, but, you know, um, I was able to, you know, um, move forward. And again, that was my, my sisters. I'm very close to my sisters. And um, that's one of the reasons why I moved from San Francisco to Minneapolis because my family's here. Right. Yeah. And it's been a really good move for you. I mean, you've, I personally think you've kind of, blossomed since you've been there i'd like to talk about oleb which is you know you're very oprah of you to um name your company your your name spelled backward totally and i have no shame i i always <laughs> say that i preface that and i totally co- copied oprah um, <laughs> which is awesome but you so you started with the you decided to be a publisher and t- tell us what you know, was going through your head when you decided, you know, I want to publish other works from, from disabled writers. Well, you know, when, when Blind um, was published, it did really well. You know, I was surprised, um, especially because, you know, a lot of the response from a lot of literary agents and publishing houses was that, you know, a story about a blind person isn't very commercial. You know, they don't think a lot of people will be able to connect. And it was completely opposite. And I was really surprised with, you know, the people that were most responsive. I had a huge support system from veterans. Mm-hmm. Veterans um, of war? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of, or are people who were serving, you know, in, in the military. And so, uh, you know, just the support was just, you know, fantastic. However, you know, within these various groups that came in to see me read, I had a lot of people with disabilities who would also say, hey, it's great that you've made it, but how, you know, 
how did you make it? Or I can't make it. And how can I get published? And, you know, um, I got a lot of support from, you know, the, 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 uh, Latino community and, uh, the LGBT community. Like for instance, I, I got a fellowship from the, uh, Lambda literary foundation, um, in California. And that was so instrumental in really helping me get like a mentor and learning, you know, the, the world of publishing. But as a person with a disability, I've never had that space. And so that's where the idea for OLIP books came from, where I wanted to build community and, you know, uh, what we're doing right now, we're not just publishing, um, authors with disabilities. We are also curating content uh, on our blog for people to learn how to, you know, navigate publishing. You know, how to write a query letter. You know, how to, you know, um, how to look mm. out for, you know, how to find journals to publish your work. That's awesome, and that can be found at olebbooks.com, right? Correct. So, your first book was called "Firsts: Coming of Age Stories by People with Disabilities," and I read it, and it was fantastic. How did you find your writers? You know, it took a couple of years. You know, um, I, I think you know I was working. Um, I have a column with the Bay Area Reporter, and it's a monthly column on disability uh, issues, and so some of the people that I um, that uh, I published uh, in the anthology were people that I met that experience of me interviewing them for a column. And, you know, there were people from various backgrounds. So, you know, I also put a call, put out a call for submissions via poets and writers and other uh, literary magazines. And so I really, you know, casted a white net because I wanted this first book to really be representative and have as many people from different backgrounds as possible. Mm. Yeah, you did a great job. How has the reception been for that book? It's been really positive. Um, it took a, a gold medal from the Reader's Favorite Book Awards. And so um, last November, um, I flew out to the Miami Book uh, Fair and got the award and, you know, um, you know, had the opportunity to you know be a part of this big literary festival. Uh, and so I, I feel that the reception has been very positive. Um, we get a lot of orders from universities. So schools are starting to assign it as, as a as college reading work. And so that's always been nice, you know, to see it, it you know, making an impact, um, not wow. just for entertainment, but also in academia. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's awesome. That makes me happy. It's, it's, you know, one of the books that you wrote, I think my favorite that never really gets talked about is Midday Dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, the story itself, but also the publishing process for Midday Dreams? Yeah, so Midday Dreams is an excerpt from um, from a novel, and it started off as a short story. And uh, I was very fortunate that I had, you know, again through the the Lambda literary experience, uh, an opportunity to share my work with a lot of prominent writers. And so, you know, Phyllis Phyllis Picano, uh, who is like within, you know, he's big name in the uh, LGBT. Uh, publishing community and writing community and you know he endorsed it and so that really gave me the confidence to say hey let me put this out there and i was also wanting to experiment with you know self-publishing just an ebook mm. and you know um i was surprised that you know just a a, a novella of about maybe seven thousand words was able to get uh, media coverage so it was profiled in a couple of um magazines uh sf weekly profiled the, the 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 book and it got reviewed by lots of places in europe um and so you know it's uh probably my most successful piece of fiction because of the number of people who read it um 
And it's something that, you know, I've been working on to expand that into like a, a bigger book for, um, for a couple of years now. And I'm hoping, you know, to be putting the final touches on that project soon. Oh, wow. Okay. So you have a novel in your future that we can look for. Yes. Awesome. That's How far cool. off is that one? Yeah. You know, um, I'm kind of shy to talk about it because I, I feel like I jinx myself. Like I was on a, a, on a, on a podcast a couple months ago and I said, oh, it's going to be out by 2020. It's, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I feel, you know, my, uh, being, uh, a business owner just takes up a lot of my, my writing time. So now like I really, I'm not writing every day. Like I would want to, I think I'm writing maybe two days out of the week. Mm. Um, and so that's really delayed my, my process. And so, um, and I'm still doing, you know, my own journalism as well. Um, for different companies, but, um, yeah, no, so it's definitely, it's, it's in the works and I'll definitely, um, make the big announcements once, uh, once it's, it's concrete. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll look, we'll remember to look for that. Well, I have a question. So, you know, do you ever like look at your retirement and those years and, and what do you picture yourself doing? How do you picture yourself spending your time? You know, I want to, those people that I'm always doing a lot of things like it's hard. For, and I think it's, it just comes down to, it's hard for me, for me to say no. <laughs> and, you know, my partner, you know, James will tell me, he's like, Oh my gosh, what, what did you volunteer us to do now? You know, <laughs> and I don't you know what you mean to. at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the serial entrepreneur talking in you. It, it really is. You know, so, you know, I have OLED media, which is my, my ADA compliance firm and that that's busy. Um, and, you know, we have the publishing company and I'm building partnerships with other nonprofits. And, you know, um, you know, I, I think I'm going to be one of those people that even if I, you know, retire, I'm still going to be doing other things, you know, maybe volunteering or be active. You know, um, mm-hmm. my grandmother lived to be 102. And I think wow. it was because she was always busy. She always worked. Yeah. Yep. And probably had a really positive attitude and enjoyed life. Yep. Yeah. My paternal grandmother lived to be 102. Oh, awesome. So, so Bella, we're going to be really old together. I, I like that. Yes, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> you are a little younger than me, but, you know, still. So here's what's interesting is you started out in tech and you really kind of ended up in tech because now Oleb Media, you help tech companies become ADA compliant. And that's pretty cool. You've kind of come full circle. You know, it happened very, again, organically. And I think that for me, you know, um, I really dive deep. I'm, I'm a all or nothing type of person, you know, when I commit to something. And so, um, you know, it just made sense, you know, and I was frustrated that, you know, um, for a long time, one of the reasons why I was having a hard time finding work or couldn't get full-time work was because of, um, uh, the lack of digital inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, uh, digital inclusion is the ability to be able to access digital information or services, no matter of your social economic background or your ability to do something. And so, you know, digital inclusion benefits everyone. And I'm not just talking about, you know, accessible websites. I'm talking about accessible interfaces on machines, like for instance, mm-hmm. like ATMs, or, you know, uh, different stations where you need to pay for stuff or access information like at, at airports mm, and yeah. making those accessible for everyone, you know, 
uh, was very important. So for a long time, you know, lots of, you know, companies were saying, oh, we are so about diversity and I would go to their job application portal and I couldn't access it with my software. Wow. And when I would reach out to them, they would say, well, yeah, we don't know how to fix that. And so <laughs> it took me a couple of years just to really say, okay, I went from being the person, okay, I'll write about it and say that you need to fix it, you know, in my columns and as a journalist, but then take the next step and say, actually, you know what? I could be that person that could help you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and talk to me, you know, because one of the, the reason we know you is you came to us and we helped you with your first website. And I'm really excited about making our websites completely accessible. And talk to us about what that process looks like for a web company or an interface. Well, it's for anyone, you know, um, digital inclusion affects anybody. So even someone who, you know, would be considered like a content creator, right? Even if you're just a blogger, you know, adding, you know, alt text to your uh, images would be great. You know, if you're a podcaster, making sure that you have transcripts, you know, um, for your shows, uh, making sure, you know, on your website, they're using the right colors, you know, so um, you're really trying to reach as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you know, for OLED Media, you know, we, our philosophy comes from the user experience. You know, if you think that you, none of your users will be blind or deaf or, you know, wheelchair users or be colorblind, you're greatly mistaken. Well, and it's actually surprising how many people are colorblind. Colorblind. It's people don't huge. think about that. Oh, it's yeah. huge. It's like one out of seven people have some level of colorblindness and about 55% of people who are colorblind are not aware that they're colorblind. Mm. Oh, interesting. Wow. You know, wow. And, and then there's the people who are, you know, uh, who have temporarily have a disability, like, you know, have a, I had a friend who was, you know, was this avid, you know, bike rider and he had a, he fell over and broke both his hands. So then I had to teach him how to use, you know, Syria and, you know, his, get his, you know, Alexa hooked up so he could, you know, do things through uh, audio. Wow. Technology. It's exactly. Amazing. You know, and <laughs> it's one of those things that you never know what, what you'll need. You know, I always tell people that, you know, disability doesn't discriminate, yeah. you know. Um, and, you know, why wouldn't you want to have as many people engage with your content or your products or services as possible? Yeah. You know, you mentioned alt tags earlier. Can you tell our listeners what an alt tag is? Yeah. So, you know, this is how you, a text that you use to describe images, you know, uh, for instance, if you have, if you're writing a blog about, you know, uh, turtles (laughs) and you have a (laughs) a picture of a cute little turtle, then you would describe, you know, image of a turtle, you know, uh, on, on a white sandy beach. right? Right. And it just gives people information, um, you know, it all, helps tell all, the whole story. It helps tell the story too. And, you know, uh, it also makes your, your content more searchable, you know, because mm-hmm. it improves your SEO, your, your search engine optimization, because then, you know, these keywords get added to um, your post. And, and your so, metadata, yeah. Exactly, your metadata. So, you know, uh, it's, it's a win-win. I mean, you get to include more people. People get to access your work. You know, you improve you know, your visibility with, you know, the different search engine. And so, I mean... I always tell people, you know, or business owners, like if you don't, if you don't have a digital inclusion, you know, uh, policy, then you're not, you know, you're not being you're missing out. Yeah, exactly. You're not reaching out. You're not being your optimal self. 
Totally. Yeah. And it's so important online. I mean, I used to teach SEO classes and people would just look at me. You know, and I think about like how many people would describe an image as book cover, right? So for you as a as a blind user, that must have been really frustrating, right? <laughs> Instead of, you know, describing what the book cover looked like so you had the full experience, you just got book cover. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, there's also, you know, videos and uh and transcripts and all these things that are useful, you know, for people with other disabilities. Uh, if people, you know, uh, with OLED books, we're we're uh, we're very active on on YouTube, and we're creating a lot of videos, a lot of you know uh, documentaries about you know not just writing, but about our authors. You know, my work is really to help launch the you know or you know promote these uh, writers with disabilities, and so we're doing a lot of you know it's called descriptive audio. We're providing transcripts. We're doing closed captioning. Uh, we're you know promoting and you know even our marketing materials are we're make sure that they're fully inclusive and in how mm-hmm. we uh, describe things and share things um so I, you know uh yeah no it was very frustrating for me as a user and you know I, again you know writing gave me the ability to say hey you know call people out and say hey this needs to be fixed you know i'm, I'm a user you know right. um but it wasn't really until I started my doctorate and moved towards being a consultant that I realized, hey, you know, um, we're consumers, you know, our, our money is good too, you know? <laughs> so, right, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a huge audience that's really just being completely disregarded. Correct. And something that people don't always realize is that uh, the disability community is the largest minority group. So according to the U.S. Census, one in five people have a disability. Mm. But people, the disability community is positioned in a very unique way where when you get people with disabilities, you often get their families and the agencies that support them. Right, right. You know, for instance, as a blind person, all my family donate and support things that are disability related. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen with me being gay. There's people in my family who are like, okay, (laughs) good for you, you know. Don't talk about right. it. I won't hear about it. La, 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 la. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, with right. the other, with me being Jewish, I have family members who are Catholic. and like, okay, well, you know, good for you. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with, you know, <laughs> young people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but with disability, is something that my family gets behind. And also, you know, the, the organizations that support me, the nonprofits, the advocacy agencies, the government agencies, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you get the buy-in with them too. Right. So it's a huge demographic. Yeah, absolutely. It really didn't cross my radar until uh, like the last 10 years of my mother's life when she was bound to a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So then I, I would just find myself like raging at the fact that there weren't curb cuts or mm-hmm. someone would park their big truck across the sidewalk and we wouldn't be able to get down it. Right. Definitely. And, you know, a lot of, you know, when we look at uh, you know, structural accessibility, you know, curve cuts and automatic doors. Those are all things that were made for people with disabilities, but we all benefit from that. Oh my God, how many times I, have I not yeah. benefited from automatic door? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really a fascinating topic too when you go back and look how recent we started having, you know, curb cuts alone when these things started coming into, you know, our daily lives. It just wasn't that long ago. It wasn't, you know, the, uh, the ADA turns 30, uh, on July the 26th this year. And to think that, you know, um, only 30, exactly. So had I been born with a disability, I wouldn't have received any rights until I was, you know, in middle school. Right. 
Yeah, that's pretty crazy to think about. It's an important topic. You know, we're, I, I want to tell our listeners that Bello is going to be speaking at the San Diego Writers Festival this year on April 4th about, you know, how to create opportunity for yourself as a disabled person. And I'm really excited that you're going to be joining, joining us, Bello. I'm excited too. It's, uh, you know, San Diego is so lovely. It is. It's a good place. And um, it's going to be very sunny that day. I just want everyone to know that. There won't be <laughs> any rain. <laughs> so, Bello, I've heard that one of your favorite pastimes as a kid was gaming. It was. It, it really was. And I've written about it, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to hear about, you know, you've tried to do some gaming um, as a blind person. Talk to us about, about that. You know, there was this period of my life, of my blind life, where I think I'd been blind for two or three years. You know, the, the dust was settling. I was trying to figure, I had figured out how to do everything the blind way. I had a job. I had, you know, I was in a relationship. And at that time, I just, I started looking at, you know, things that I used to do before that I wanted to get back. And one of them was playing video games. And so, um, you know, that was a journey on its own where, you know, uh, Lots of the, the gaming websites or consoles were not, you know, accessible. And, you know, some of the organizations have really stepped up and made that a priority. And, uh, you know, I would like to um, definitely credit Microsoft. They've been amazing in, you know, ensuring that their controllers, their console, their, you know, their um, every the experience is as inclusive as possible. So, I mean, things have really changed in that department, uh, in that, you know, in that space. But I feel in it, that initially, like, you know, when I was newly blind, you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. So I really struggled with, you know, how to get back into it and, mm. you know, going online and trying to figure out how to do things with my way or, you know, if I hit this button, what does it really mean? What does it do? And can, you know, so it was definitely a process of figuring things out and doing things differently. Mm. Are you able to experience gaming at all now? Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, you know, again, you know, don't do it as much as I would like to do it a couple handful of times <laughs> a week, but um, yeah, no, I, I play, you know, I play online and sometimes I play with people who don't even know that I'm blind. And so wow. I always think that's pretty cool where, you know, we're in a place where we're just engaging no matter who we are. Mm-hmm. What games are you playing? I play, you know, all kinds of different, you know, games. I, I, I do the, the, you know, uh, I, it's going to sound so, uh, not like me, but I like a lot of the fighting games <laughs> and I think that good stress, you know, relievers like after a, you know, long day of work, like, Arr, you know, <laughs> sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So I think those are, you know, pretty easy, straightforward, um, to play. Um, you know, I've also, um, there's this big move now to make, you know, um, games you know not games but you know team building exercises more accessible so i'm spending a lot of time with that because you know now with you know with people being more aware of organizations being more aware of you know team 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 building needs or the importance of you know fostering relations within your teams you know how do you make those accessible so you know i have two clients that are you know that's what i'm working with is you know they have a lot of training and they have exercises to say okay you know um please stand up and do this. Well, not everyone can stand up, you know, how do we yeah. make this more accessible? And so, Oh, interesting. Exactly. You know, or how do you, you know, what if you have people who are blind or people who don't have hands mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or can't get up or can't stand or, you know, can't shake sure. their left foot. You know? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. We don't think about these things. 
Exactly. So, you know, recently I've been trying to, you know, as I'm tapping in from my, my experience as a gamer, you know, when was I fully, when did I feel like I was included? And a lot of it has been, you know, uh, playing, you know, uh, Xbox with my Xbox experience and, you know, actually pulling from that experience and how do I put this into, you know, the, the uh, corporate, you know, um, training room, right? And so I'm having a lot of fun with that. But yeah, you know, when people, if you're in a space of training people, you know, you have to realize that not everyone could do everything that you may ask them. And if you come across that experience, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is similar in yoga. So I've taken a lot of yoga in my life. And the, I think what is really cool about yoga is everyone can experience the same benefits but at different levels. So you might be able to reach over, you know, bend over and touch your toes, right? Someone else might not be able to. So we adapt the moves so that it's accessible to everybody. And that's, so I kind of think of, that's really what you're talking about is everyone will get the same benefit out of it, but they go out about it a different way. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up yoga because I, yoga was one of the first activities that I got back when I became blind because it was so accessible. There was a lot of, um, adapted yoga classes or yoga for the blind, you know, in San Francisco, the, the lighthouse um, had yoga classes. And so that was the first thing that I was like, well, that was easy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think definitely yoga is very, it could be, you know, it's very accessible. Now, how'd you go from there to capoeira? Well, um, <laughs> capoeira is an <laughs> Afro-Brazilian martial art, um, you know, for those listeners who don't know, and capoeira is the national sport of Brazil. And it's an Afro-Brazilian martial art that was developed by um, uh, African slaves during the slave period in Brazil. And it's very unique because you only use your uh, legs. Everything, mm-hmm. every movement comes from your legs. And it's because uh, as the, uh, the slaves were developing this way to fight back um, against the, the Portuguese uh, slave owners, um, you know, often they, their hands were chained together. Mm, wow. And so, yeah, so that. that's where that comes from. But it was very effective where a lot of them were able to use this martial art to escape and build, um, they call them quilongos, which are villages deep in the Amazons of free slaves or runaway slaves. Mm. And um, definitely. So I started Capoeira when I was uh, 12 years old and definitely encouraged by my, my father and my father's family to, to practice Capoeira, but later it became my own passion. And when I lost my sight, uh, there was two things kind of holding me back. One is, you know, how can I do this martial art that's incredibly acrobatic, you know, without sight? And it's done to live music. That's the other thing, too, where you're in a circle and there's two fighters in the middle of the circle, you know, exchanging kicks. And, you know, the uh, there's the music playing dictates how you play. So if the music's playing slow, you play slow. If it's fast, you play fast. And there's different rhythms that say take your opponent down so that you take them down. And that's the the other cool part about capoeira, where these uh, the uh, the slaves who developed it uh, disguised it as a dance, so they could practice it and tell their slave owners that we're just dancing. When in reality, they were improving their techniques so they could you know escape or you know uh, wow. gain some independence. That's, yeah, that's Exa- cool. Exactly. So there was you know when I was I was blind, I was thinking, how am I going to do this again? Because it's done to live music. You know, how am I going to do these, all these acrobatics? And so, um, and there are you know, actual kicks being thrown. Exactly. Know. You know, I've, I've seen video of you. It's cool. 
Uh, thank you. Yeah, so it was definitely a process. You know, I did. I was in the Bay Area, and I reached out to a handful of studios. The studio where I had trained was in San Jose, and I, you know, although I did make it out there a couple of times, it was really far to keep up with my training on a on a weekly basis. And um, reached out to a couple of schools, and some schools say we don't want to train you because it's a liability. You know, we don't. Uh, the gym doesn't let us, you know, train you, or our insurance doesn't cover you if you get hurt. They're really afraid of being, you know, liable. Um, but I came across, you know, uh, I reached out to Mestre Accordion in Berkeley, and who's actually one of the, um, he's like a living legend on its own, on his own. And so he said, "I'll train you. I don't care that you're blind. You, I'll, I'll teach you." And he was wonderful awesome. in adapting capoeira for me, you know, and showing me how to do different kicks and how to play with people and how, teaching other people how to play with me. You know, mm-hmm. so it was it was wonderful, and you know, I I owe him so much because he he took a chance and it turned into something that was you know very powerful for me. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. Now, is there any place in the Midwest that you can go to now that you're no longer in the city? There's a couple of Capoeira schools here in you know in Minneapolis, um, and so I've, I've I've attended a couple of classes, and they're good. They've actually been very welcoming as well. Um, and it's just, again, it's time, right? Like balancing your time. Mm. Um, and I'm also, (laughs) um, you know, uh, I'm turning 40 in a couple of months. And so, you know, I'm realizing that my recovery period is a little longer. Mm. So, um, come on, (laughs) how do I do this and not hurt myself? Honestly, I feel as though like, especially because everything comes from, you know, I don't have visual uh, of myself, but I feel like, you know, that my brain often writes checks that my body can't cash (laughs) when it comes to like martial arts and stuff. And so I need to be careful where mentally I know how to do this, but it doesn't mean that my body could do it anymore. Right. You know, and you know, what's weird is I don't, you know, the last time I saw my reflection was, you know, over 10 years ago. So, you know, I'm always going to think I I look or I am in my twenties when I'm not. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> working through that, but yeah, you know, it's definitely something that I do periodically. And sadly, I don't get to do it as often as, as I, as I wish. And, but it's still part of my life. What are you most excited about right now? I think that, you know, as somebody who really struggled with inequalities and in access 10 years ago as a blind person, I think, you know, when, 10 years ago when I would email someone and say, Hey, I want to work for you. I want to work for your company, you know, help me, you know, apply. Cause I, your website is not accessible. They often would say, well, if you can't fill out the application, then what makes you think that you could work for us? Mm. I got that a lot. Or if you can't figure yeah. that out, then, you know, we can't, you can't work for us. You know, yeah. 10 years ago, it was so easy for people to say, okay, this is too complicated. No. Versus I doing? think now we're yeah. in a space where people are recognizing the value that people with disabilities bring to the table, you know, uh, uh, as people, anyone with a disability knows is we have to reinvent ourselves every day. Yeah. You know, we have to be creative and, you know, and uh, inventive and in how to negotiate different things. You know, like for instance, like I have, um, I filled out a, you know, I use a rubber when I'm, I was traveling, I forgot my, my, uh, I have an app that takes pictures of things and tells me what they are. Um, mm. but I, for, you know, I, um, I had a new phone That's and I couldn't cool. figure out how to download the app. So I started using rubber bands at the hotel just so I could tell the difference between the shampoo bottle and the conditioner bottle. Cause that would make a big difference. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. Different ways. And, you know, when I talk to people with disabilities, they, they make things, they, you know, they adapt things, they, 
find ways to make things happen. And so I think that that level of creativity brings a lot of value to organizations. That is, that is exciting. Yeah. The future is wide open, right? Absolutely. Well, I want to tell readers how they can find you. We mentioned Blind, a memoir, Midday Dreams, and Firsts, coming-of-age stories by people with disabilities. These can be purchased on your website at olebbooks.com. People can also learn more about Bello on his personal website, bellocipriani.com. That's B-E-L-O-C-I-P-R-I-A-N-I.com. And then, of course, your ADA consulting firm at olebmedia.com. Thank you so much, Bello, for joining us. It's been really nice just getting to know you a little bit better and talking about, I think, how exciting the future is. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Awesome. So, folks, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow and rate The Premise wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll look forward to seeing you and talking to you next week. Check us out at thepremisepod.com. Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey See Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey See Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeycmedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, build a powerful online presence mm-hmm. what else you got chad uh let's see we've got the san diego writer festival san diego writers festival there That's- are many writers <laughs> and they're a proud sponsor of our premise podcast as well mm-hmm. and it's gonna be awesome this year's keynote is scott gimple he's the head writer of the walking dead and the festival is free it's open to the public there's going to be educational panels and workshops famous authors up-and-coming authors, kids and teen programming, and live theater performances. Oh, and there's music. Oh, and there's food. Oh, but wait, there's more. You also get a copy of our home game. Oh, you're silly. But wait, there is more. There will be literary agents taking pitches from authors looking to get their books published. The festival is about building community and celebrating storytelling of all kinds. It's happening April 4th, 2020 at the Coronado Public Library. 